When it comes to money, your money is getting worth, worth less all the time. I was reading um, an article not too long ago. Since the Federal Reserve was instituted in 1913, the dollar has lost 96% of its value. Oh, it's 98 now. In just the last three weeks, we've added two more now. The inflation level keeps eating away at it. So one of the things you want to do in that regard is to um, think of getting things that have intrinsic value, like silver, gold. Um, my kids always ask me why I didn't buy silver when it was only $2.50 an ounce. And I always tell them, because I was busy getting other things for you, like food, water, <laughs> you know, housing. So um, other things you can get are like um, gold, silver, lead. Lead is always a good investment. Land. Land is a good investment. Um, to put your money in things that hold intrinsic value um, is a good thing to do. Because if it's just sitting there, it's losing value every minute. <laughs> so, and I think it's only going to get worse the way things are looking. I talked about this two weeks into the whole thing in March of 2020, that they're annihilating the economy with all this money they want to spend. But who cared then, right? That's way down the road. Well, here we are, down the road. So there's consequence to pay. Is this thing working okay? Is there still like a ding-dong? Okay, all right. We're going to start in Malachi chapter 1, so if you could turn to Malachi chapter 1, that would be good. And I just want to make a few comments about the book, as I usually do. Sometimes I do a whole sermon introducing the book. I'm not going to do that this time. We're actually going to cover all of chapter 1, and I'm going to give an introduction to the book. So let me begin by simply saying this. Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi are the three post-exilic prophets. There are those who prophesied subsequent to the Jewish people being exiled to Babylon. We have no idea exactly when Malachi lived or prophesied. Not exactly when he lived or prophesied, but we do know it was sometime in the 400s B.C., near the time of Nehemiah. We do know where he prophesied in and around Jerusalem, we do know Malachi is the last book posted in the Old Testament canon and that he was the last Old Testament prophet, Malachi. Or as the Italians like to call him, Malachi. Malachi's name means his messenger. One scholar I read describes the context in which Malachi came to preach and he stated this, quote, The exiles had returned... The temple had been rebuilt. The city of Jerusalem had returned to a substantial degree of normalcy. And the inevitable lethargy, laxity, and leniency in spiritual matters had developed. Unquote. He went on to write, quote, A measure of comfort and security under the Persian rule encouraged the people of Judah to let their hands fall in their task of building their nation under God. To this declining state of affairs, the last prophet of the Old Testament addressed himself. Unquote. These are all common traits regarding man. When things are going well, inevitably, 
as the scholar says, lethargy, laxity, and leniency regarding the things of the Lord sets in. Even in our day among Christians, we have seen that. The people had also become complacent under Persian rule, kind of like they've become complacent under federal rule in our days. They let their hands fall, he says, in their task of building their nation under God. Does this not sound strangely familiar to America and American Christianity in our day? It sounds familiar because one of the things that never changes is the nature of man. And so history reveals this lethargy and laxity and leniency, this failure to build his kingdom in the earth. You know, Christ taught us to pray on earth as it is in heaven. We see this failure to build again and again because of the nature of man. Malachi addresses a corrupt priesthood In our day, it is a corrupt churchman. Malachi took them to task, and so must the churchmen of our day be taken to task. The sins addressed at the time among the people and the leadership and the churchmen by Malachi were sorcery, adultery, perjury, fraud, oppression, and injustice. The view of domestic commitment was low, and divorce was rampant. So why don't we stand for the reading of God's word? We're going to read verses 1 through 5 of Malachi, chapter 1. The scripture reads, The burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. Yet you say, In what way have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord? Yet Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. And laid waste his mountains and his heritage for the jackals of the wilderness. Even though Edom has said, we have been impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will throw down. They shall be called the territory of wickedness and the people against whom the Lord will have indignation forever. Your eyes shall see and you shall say, The Lord is magnified beyond the border of Israel. May God bless the reading of his word. The title of my sermon this morning is Worship, Authority, and All Nations. Let's pray. Father, we give thanks and praise to you that you have preserved your word down through the ages so that we might study it and know your ways and your thoughts so that we might know you through your scriptures. O Lord, and Lord, that we might know how to live as Christian men and women. We ask and pray, O Lord, that you be glorified in the preaching of your word this morning, that something is said or things are declared that moves within the hearts of the hearers so that their love for you will grow deeper and their desire to serve you will grow greater. We ask for these things, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. You could be seated. So here in verses 1 through 5, the Lord begins by pointing out his love for Israel, and he appeals to Jacob and Esau. The Lord chose that the older shall serve the younger. Remember that back in Genesis? 
So Jacob, the younger, was the one through whom the birthright came, the lineage through whom the Israelite nation would be built, rather than the older Esau. God says, I have loved you. They respond and say, what way have you loved us? He says, was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord? Yet Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. It's important to note that Malachi declares that the Lord hated Esau in light of his life lived. God did not say this of Esau prior to his life being lived. It isn't that God goes to an individual and says, I like you and you'll be good, and another individual, I hate you and you'll be bad, as some believe. He said this in light of his life lived. And Esau lived his life in rebellion to the Lord, marrying non-Israelite women. He and the nation of Edom, because the Edomites are the descendants of Esau, lived as Israel's enemies. In fact, as one scholar points out, they are the longest-running and most consistent enemy of Israel in Scripture. Hence the Lord's curse upon them. He says that their area shall be known as the territory of wickedness, verse 4, and the people against whom the Lord will have indignation forever. Amen. So God assures Israel of his love for them by declaring the doom of Edom as is declared in verses 4 and 5 here in our passage. And we know, historically, that not long after this prophecy, in the 4th century, the Nabataeans moved through Edom, driving the Edomites out of their centuries-old homeland to the southern part of Judah. This area later became known as Idumea, and Idumea is mentioned in the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 3, verse 8, for those of you taking notes. Some of Jesus' disciples came from Idumea and were likely of Edomite heritage. So the Lord assures Israel of his love for them, but now he begins his indictment against them through the prophet Malachi. Verse 6 reads, and it says, A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am the father, where is my honor? And if I am a master... Where is my reverence? They were lacking honor and reverence for the Lord. The scripture goes on and says, Says the Lord of hosts, to you priests, remember he's taking the churchmen of that day to task, to you priests who despise my name, yet you say, in what way have we despised your name? Just as the priests back in Malachi's day had lost their fealty, honor, and reverence for the Lord, so it is with most of the churchmen in our day. They have lost their fealty, honor, and reverence for the Lord. And like the priests of old, who had pillared a form of worship not true to the Lord, so the churchmen of our day have pillared a form of worship not true to the Lord. And understand, it is the very form of worship they have pillared in our land that causes them not to see their lack of fealty, honor, and reverence for the Lord. 
The very form of Christianity they've created blinds them to the state of the Christianity that they've established and pillared in the land. This lack of true worship is a strain of thought that runs throughout chapter 1. Notice as we go on here, verses 7 and 8, you offer defiled food on my altar, but say, in what way have we defiled you? By saying, the table of the Lord is contemptible. And when you offer the blind as a sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? He's talking about animals here. Offer it then to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts? Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 21, says that none of these types of animals were to be allowed. The animal that was brought for sacrifice was to be without blemish. Deuteronomy 15, 21. So this form of worship they had pillared gives the outward surface appearance of true worship, but it had lost its substance. They're still sacrificing animals, but look what kind of animals they're sacrificing. Animals that are sick, animals that are lame, blemished animals. The form of worship they had pillared had the outward surface appearance of true worship, but had lost its substance. They were just going through the motions. Even their hearts weren't really into it anymore. Look at verse 13, where this strain of thought is continued. It says, you also say, oh, what a weariness, and you sneer at it, says the Lord of hosts. And you bring the stolen, the lame, and the sick. Thus you bring an offering. Should I accept this from your hands, says the Lord? They were just going through the motions. It was a weariness to them, a burden to them. They sneer at true worship. It is contemptuous to them. They had pillared a spiritual moose club. Pure worship was not only not seen in their lives, but it was not even seen in their most basic form of worship when everyone gathered because it was not in their hearts. And this is the situation that we see with American Christianity. The churchmen have lulled the Christians to sleep with a phony, moose club form of Christianity, one which makes the people feel like they are doing what Christianity is all about, but which has deceived them. A Christianity which accommodates the Christian to peaceful coexistence with 49 years of systematic innocent bloodshed of the murdered preborn. A Christianity that two years into a global vicious attack by evil men who have imposed tyranny under the false narrative of a virus upon mankind teaches Christian men and women to obey the tyrants and blindly comply with the evil. Churchmen who actually aid and abet the evil and the tyrants by twisting scripture and convincing Christian people to do what the tyrants say while they declare that to be love, while they tell them smooth things and declare to them peace, peace when there is no peace. And we could go on and on and on and on and on with the churchmen of America. When you are not truly in love with him and you don't do those things which are dear to his heart, God views all our religious 
baggage as a stench in his nostrils. The prophets repeat this again and again and again in their declarations against Israel. Christianity has ebbed and waned down through the ages because mankind, being what he is, Christian men have followed often the same thing. Going through the outward appearance, but having lost the substance. Shallow on the outside, no substance on the inside. He says here in verse 10, get this, who is there even among you who would shut the doors so that you would not kindle fire on my altar in vain? God does not like it when we're just going through our outward religious observances like meeting like we do. He says, who's going to shut the doors? He just wants the whole thing shut down. That's how big of a deal it is to the Lord. If we are not true to the Lord, if we do not do those things which are dear to his heart, He views all this religious stuff going on at church as a stench in his nostrils. Let's just look at the prophet Isaiah, though I could look at every single prophet because their messages have a similar strain, this strain regarding God's people, where they show this outward shallowness, but they have no deep, Substance. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 12. The Lord says, When you come to appear before me, who has required this from your hand to trample my courts? Bring no more futile sacrifices. Incense is an abomination to me. The new moons, the Sabbaths, and the calling of assemblies, I cannot endure iniquity and the sacred meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. These are things he had pillared they were to do. But because of the state of their heart and mind, he says, I hate them. They are a trouble to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, rebuke the oppressor, defend the fatherless, plead for the widow. Amen? Christians do not use actual incense or sacrifice actual animals. But Revelation 5.8 shows that incense corresponds to prayer, which the prophet brings up in Isaiah 1. And Hebrews 13.15 speaks about a sacrifice of praise. And Christ is the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. People are being sickened, and remain shallow due to this awful form of American Christianity so similar to what Malachi was addressing in his day. 
The Lord even refers to those participating in this form of worship as deceivers. Verse 14, he says, But cursed be the deceiver who has in his flock a male and takes a vow, but sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is to be feared among the nations. The second strain of thought I want you to notice is found in verse, verses 8 through 11. Let's read verse 8 there. It says, And when you offer the blind as a sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? Offer it then to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts? When Malachi speaks of the governor here, Malachi is referring to some Persian civil authority. Malachi is referring to some Persian civil authority, and the implication here is that the priests and the people would not give him such an unworthy sacrifice, but they have no problem giving such an unworthy sacrifice to the Lord. In other words, statism was big. The idolatry of the state, which comes up time and time again in the history of mankind, is present here. Where men have more honor, reverence, and fealty to the state than they do to the Lord himself. This is a matter of authority. Understand when men have more fealty, honor, and reverence for human authority than they do for the Lord, all of society is in jeopardy. Why? Because if we remove the Lord as being the ultimate sovereign, the ultimate lawgiver, then the state is free to be such. And they are able to make law out of mere whim, out of thin air, because there is no objective standard by which to judge the governments and laws of men. When men have more fealty, honor, and reverence for human authority than they do for the Lord, all of society is in jeopardy. Malachi counters such thinking with who the Lord is. He says in verses 9 and 10 and 11, But now entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to us while this is being done by your hands, Will he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts? Who is there even among you who would shut the doors so that you would not kindle fire on my altar in vain? I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept any offering from your hands. For from the rising of the sun, even to its going down, my name shall be great among the Gentiles, and every place incense shall be offered to my name. And a pure offering, a pure offering, for my name shall be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. Malachi counters this statism, this desire to treat the civil authorities superior to how they hold God in their own hearts by pointing out who God is, who the Lord is. 
and that his name shall be great among the nations. The Lord is the ultimate authority. As it says in Daniel 4, 17, the Most High rules over the realm of mankind, unquote. As it says, his name is to be great among the nations. He is not subservient to the state, nor is whatever the state declares the word of the Lord. Psalm 22, verse 28 says that he is the governor over the nations, plural. Far superior to this governor of Persia. By their bogus form of religion, the priests were teaching the people to have more fealty, honor, and reverence for the civil authorities than they had for the Lord himself, from whom the civil authorities derive their authority. And so the churchmen in our day have taught Americans the same thing. They have taught the people to have more fealty, honor, and reverence for human civil authority than for the Lord himself. And therefore, we now live in a lawless state. You must understand, without a valid doctrine of authority, order will not stand in society. When you talk sometimes about the doctrine of the lesser magistrate, the worthless churchmen say, oh, you don't, you don't respect authority. No, it's precisely the fact that we do respect authority, that we understand the abuse of authority must be confronted. You have no true understanding of authority or respect for authority if you think you should not confront the abuse of authority. If the governments of men are not accountable to God's law, then they can decree whatever they want, make law out of mere whim, out of thin air, and they do. In fact, it almost appears that they go to the Word of God to see what God has to say about a matter, and then they do exactly the opposite. Jesus said in Matthew 28, verse 18, quote, All authority in heaven and earth has been given unto me, unquote. And those in civil authority are under his authority. They are to govern according to his rule, They are not gods unto themselves, though many think of themselves as such. His law and word is binding upon all men, and all men will be judged according to it. His law and word is binding upon all governments of men. And this is the message of the church. No wonder the church has found itself in conflict with the state down through the ages. Our allegiance is to Christ first, not man, not the state. The church in America today has compromised on this. The church in America today is happy to simply have a place at the table, one voice among many. This was not so with the early church. They viewed themselves as the witnesses and ambassadors of Christ. Their allegiance was to Christ first, and this is what brought them into conflict with the state, making his law and word known to the governments of men when they were operating counter to his law and word. The church today is a whore in America, which will go along with anything to get along. That is why we have a Christianity that wants to emphasize how he is merely the Lord of the heart, that he is concerned with mere spiritual conquests, but isn't the least bit concerned about political questions, as though the one doesn't affect the other. 
As one scholar I read put it, quote, Caesar couldn't ask for a more cooperative religion. Toothless, impotent Christianity is a goldmine for statism. It keeps men's attention focused on the clouds while the state picks their pockets and steals their children. Unquote. The early church had a different view. Their allegiance was to Christ first. A pinch of incense was too much for them. And look at what Americans today swallow in regards to the edicts of the state. Need I make a list? So this second strain of statism is addressed by the prophet. How they had made the governments of men honored and revered, fealty in their hearts to them, superior to honor, reverence, and fealty to the Lord. And this leads to the third and final strain that I want to address out of this first chapter. The first being worship, the second being authority, and the third being all nations. Notice what the Lord said here again in verse 11. For from the rising of the sun, even to its going down, my name shall be great among the Gentiles, among the nations. In every place incense shall be offered to my name and a pure offering, for my name shall be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. He is to be great among all nations. And he declares something similar again in verse 14. Look there. In verse 14, he says, But cursed be the deceiver who has in his flock a male and takes a vow, but sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is to be feared among the nations. So his name is to be great among the nations, it's to be feared among the nations. Amen? All nations. All nations. This is one of the most salient points of Scripture, yet most never understand the breadth and depth of this matter. The reason is because American Christianity keeps the focus on Israel and ignores the nations. But the truth is, the focus has always been on all the nations, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Many think that in the Old Testament, the only focus was on Israel, and then in the New Testament, the focus then expanded to all nations. That is not true. All the nations have always been in purview for the Lord. His desire has always been to win all the nations unto himself. His authority has always been over all the nations of the earth, not just Israel. In the Old Testament, we had the paradigm that the Lord established where a particular racial geographical people named Israel stood true to him and all the other nations of the earth saw it and were to be one to him through seeing them in their faithful service to the Lord. In the New Testament, that's all been turned on its head. Now he makes a nation out of every tribe, tongue, and kindred. It is a holy nation, Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. We are a holy nation, all those of us who have repented and believed in Christ, whether Jew or Gentile. 
We don't sit in a one located spot and all the other know Christ turned that on its head. The paradigm is now we go out. We don't sit in one spot. I know most of Christianity still follows that motif. They would never think of going out. They only want to bring people into their locale. But the truth is, he calls upon us to go out into the highways and byways and point men to Christ. Amen? It's no longer one group of people, one racial geographical group of people that stays in one spot and everybody, all the other nations of the world, see, no, now we go to all the nations of the world as his nation, as his holy nation, as his peculiar people, Peter says. Christ taught this. He told us to go out. Amen? That all nations are in the purview of God from the very beginning is seen in that God's law is for all nations. It's seen in that he holds all nations accountable to his law when we read the Old Testament. It's seen in that he judges nations other than Israel. It's seen in that his prophets prophesy to nations other than Israel. We have all that. Grab your Strong's Concordance and look up the word nations. Do that today. And see how the nations are spoken of throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. They have always been in purview. And most people don't understand the depth and breadth of, the, of that. Because of the form of Christianity we have. Which wants us to remain in the old paradigm, focused on one nation staying in one spot, bringing people to us rather than us going out to them. It has always been the Lord's desire to win the nations unto himself. His authority is over all the nations. I had my strongest concordance out this morning, and I was going to bring it and just read like a dozen quotes from the Old Testament about the nations and God's desire for them. But I forgot to bring it. Because I'm 61 years old and I'm becoming more forgetful. Anyway, they were really cool. (laughs) So when you go home, grab your Strong's Concordance and look up the word nations. It has always been his desire to win the nations unto himself. It has always been, his authority has always been over all the nations. This is carried on into the New Testament. Matthew chapter 28 All authority has been given unto me, Jesus says. Go out, make disciples of all nations. Amen. Mark 11, Jesus said, My house shall be called a house of prayer to the nations. Psalm 2, Messianic Psalm. God says, I will give you the nations of the earth to his son, Jesus Christ. The nations have always been in purview. Revelation 1.5 declares Christ is the ruler over the kings of the earth, unquote. Some people say to me, well, how could he possibly be the ruler over the kings of the earth when most of the kings of the earth are doing evil? His sovereignty is seen even while they do evil because of the sanctions that are brought against their nations because of the consequences that are brought upon their nations for their rebellion against God. He rules over them all. This word here 
in Malachi chapter 1, verse 14, where it says, For I am a great king. That was the same term that the Persian king used for himself. And here the prophet, here the Lord himself applies it to himself. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is to be feared among the nations. He's not just the king of Persia. He's the king of every nation on the planet. His sovereignty rules over the governments of men, whether they want to do right by him or they want to do rebellion against him, his sovereignty still rules over them. Do you understand that? He is the king of kings. The Lord of lords. Amen? Not off in the future in some sweet by and by. Now. There isn't going to be kings in heaven. Okay? He's the king of kings now. Stunning, right? Let's stand up and we'll close in a word of prayer. Father, we give thanks to you. We love you. We rejoice in you. We thank you that you have preserved your scriptures so we can know your ways and your thoughts, so we can call men to account, bring reform to your bride, O Lord. State what is true. We see how off course we as mere men go when we have your word. Imagine if we did not have your word. Lord, we just ask and pray that we would be faithful and true to you in our individual lives, that we would be faithful and true, that we would hold you in reverence, honor, and fealty, true love, O God, in our homes. We ask and pray that we would demonstrate it out in the marketplace, our love for you, demonstrated in how we interact with our neighbor, in how we confront the evils and tyrants and idols of our age, how we don't sit indifferent to them, how it burns in our hearts when we see your law and word being impugned, and we must speak, we must act. And Lord, I ask and pray that you put a deep burning within the heart of each one, a great desire for them to live faithful to you, to make their lives count with the limited days you have given us. Lord, may our hearts hunger for you. May we desire to do right by you. Be glorified, O Lord, through the life of each person here, through the lives of your people everywhere. Lord, we give thanks and praise to you for your goodness to us. Be with those who are watching even this sermon, O God, via technology. Pour out your spirit upon them. Do a great work in them, we pray. May their hearts burn within them to do right by you, to make their days count upon the earth. Lord, we give thanks and praise to you for your goodness to us. Be glorified to each one, I pray. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hallelujah. You could be seated. And we're going to take communion at this time.